0: Good morning, church. Today, we're going to be reading from John 21, verses 1 through 14. Verse 1, from the Word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thanks be to God. Right, right, I'm going to pray really quick. Father God, thank you so much for this time uh, with these amazing people, just being able to hear your word. Um, I ask that you would give us the wisdom to listen, um, and even if we're struggling with things, and we've been struggling with stuff for a, little, for a while, I ask that you would help us to listen to your voice when you say, cast it one more time, try it one more time, do it on this side, do it this way. Um, Lord, I ask that you would give us the wisdom to listen and then the strength to follow through. Um, I ask that you would be with Stacy today as he is delivering your word and he is teaching us. And... Uh, That you would open up our ears and eyes and soften our hearts to hear you today. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: So I want to offer some things at the outset to help frame this particular passage. Um, You know, to provide a little context, some color, clarity, whatnot. And the first one, not to overwhelm you with my biblical insight, is this. It's that this passage is closely connected to the next one. I know right? But there's more. Um, Anyway, part of it is that what I mean is always whenever you see a passage, you know, whatever follows, the author of that had a particular intention in mind. But in this one, they're very closely connected so that what happens here isn't finished here. It's actually finished in the next passage. This isn't everything. Uh, Another thing to note is that as these guys go back, they are professional fishermen. It's not we're, we're sort of adjacent to a lifestyle like that maybe, but whenever we think, if, if I tell you I'm going fishing, what do you think? Well, you think, well, fishing has a G at the end of it, so you're not from around here. But other than that, you think you're probably taking a break, right? You're probably done with this if it's been a hard patch, and you're just trying to like withdraw into something that's more familiar to you, more comfortable uh, for you, and just sort of reorient yourself. That's not these guys. These guys are pros. This is their former lives. And what we're seeing here is that Peter and the other guys are re-engaging their former life. Uh, another thing, they have been, you know, that you, you see that it's Jesus here who tells them, cast it one more time, do it on the right side of the boat. He coaches them. This isn't the first time. It's not the only time that they've been coached by Jesus. Um, that account happened in Luke chapter five verses one through eleven, and there are a lot of similarities and some differences. One of the differences is that the net here didn't tear, but it did there. But part of it is that you'd say, "Well, what goes into this? These guys are pros, um, but he's beyond a pro. He knows. He knows creation because he's the author of it." But here's the big thing: as you as you lead in, what is going on here as we're getting towards? the end of the Gospel of John, what is the author, what is John trying to show us? Well, he's reinforcing a theme that he's already established. He's already established something, and then he comes back to it again, and now he comes back to it again, and here it is. That Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples so that they can witness to the world of his resurrection. He's establishing that. There are going to be a couple of insights that come out of that, but that part is central to everything that Jesus is the one who died, was buried, um, and is now raised. And so what John says in this passage is that this is the third appearance in his gospel that Jesus makes to the disciples. So let's start. Verse 1, look at it again with me. I've got to get to verse 1 myself. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. It's just simply an introduction. He's going he's gonna to start it, and he's going to bookend it, this particular passage. But what shows up? First little verse, the word revealed, that word revealed has some impact to it revealed revealed um uh, notice that a few things about it he revealed himself again it's not the first time this reinforcing is something that happens that has happened before and now it's happening again we see where it's very interesting because to this point all the guys had been in jerusalem and now they're back home. Sea of Tiberias is just another name for Galilee. So they're, the, the guys are back home. They're no longer in Jerusalem. And he says re, he's going to reveal himself, or he does reveal himself in this way, reinforcing it. This is how it's happening. This is a self-revelation of Jesus. And then it, it really starts with the narrative in verse 2. Um, and you see that we're entering in tonight. He identifies uh, in verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, by the way, who are never mentioned in this gospel by name, and two of the other disciples were together. So it starts, and you see some of the disciples are together, not all of the disciples. And there's a reason that these particular guys uh, are together. There's just seven of them. And the question gets raised, well, what do you do now? All right, you follow Jesus to Jerusalem, Uh, he has come into conflict with the authorities, they've arrested him, there's this sham trial, he's crucified, he's buried, and now he's risen. It's a long enough time that, you know, you've got to ask, well, what are we going to do now? And uh, Jesus had appeared, and what's next isn't clear to them, though. And so Peter, being the guy he is, verse 3, Simon Peter said to the fellas, I'm going fishing, and they said, we'll go with you. And Peter leads them back to work. I'm going fishing. That's what we're going to do. He's often the vocal leader of the group. He's often the spokesman of the group. Whenever there's a confession made about who Jesus is, who's the one who pipes up? Peter pipes up. That goes well together. Um, so, But he says, not taking a break. The, the others follow his lead. And here's an interesting thing, though. You would think that maybe this isn't a big import, but Peter, going back home, and then going fishing and drawing the others with him has been debated throughout church history. What does this mean? And there's a theory on one side of it, what they say is, oh, Peter is essentially committing apostasy. He's walking away from his calling. He's going back to uh, the old life. He's doing what he's done. That's a pretty strong view. On the other side of that is, uh, like a guy named F.F. F. Bruce would say, well, you know, a guy's got to do something in the meantime before you get marching orders, and so that light bill isn't going to pay itself, and you got to buy groceries for the kids, and so on, right? Uh, doing something constructive is better than doing nothing constructive in the meantime, and I'm, I'm more there. That doesn't mean that there's not a point in this, it, you can get an image without this bad intention, without this kind of mens rea of some kind of evil intention. What do you see? You see him, uh, with Peter in particular, re-engaging his former life. And then what you see come out of this passage is that life is former. That's the point. That, that life isn't there for him anymore. Um, and you see it. At the end of verse 3, work doesn't work. So, Peter says, I'm going fishing. All the guys say, we'll go with you. And they went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I have done some fishing in my time. And fishing is fun, uh, but fishing and catching nothing, not so fun. And if you're relying on that to pay the bills, my guess is that's even less fun. But there are two things that stand out. Two little key words there uh, that are worth noticing. And they're microcosms in the passage. One of those words is night and the other word is nothing little microcosms little john uses light and darkness uh, a lot and what you see with these guys is on their own they can't see and on their own they can be fruitful well what happens after dark what happens after night morning morning so in verse four it starts off that way just as day was breaking And uh, at the outset of this, they go from no fish to getting fish. And we get to see how this happens in verses 4 through 6. There's this emergence of Jesus. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Keep in mind, they're still out to sea. Uh, Jesus is on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They couldn't recognize him from there, right? It's probably, you get the image that it's not completely light. It's just starting, the light is just starting to emerge And in verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered, No. Now, children seems like to us uh, you know, kind of a condescending term. It's probably more like the British would refer to each other as lads. Like, hey, lads, what's up? But we have a similar way of doing it. We'll say, hey, fellas, or hey, boys, what's going on? And we don't mean by that, or not normally, to just like it could be a group of grown men, and you're not cutting them down, right? It's just a way of referring to the fellas. Uh, hey, guys, hey, lads, hey, fellas, uh, what's up? Have you caught anything? I think this is the most normal expected question that anybody could ask to anybody who fishes, right? It's the most relevant thing. You go out and fish. By the way, if you're walking a stream and you're fishing and you come upon another guy, he's also fishing, what do you ask? Hey, you caught anything? And then after he lies to you, then you, no, I'm just kidding, right? Because that's what fishermen do. Um, so it's the most normal thing to ask, you know, have you caught anything? And they're honest, man, we haven't, we got nothing. No, they say. And it's very short, it's very succinct, almost like they're sort of in a mood about it. You go fishing all night, you come up with nothing, and, and uh, that's, that's, uh, that's going to be one of those things that puts you in a bad mood. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Jesus, there's a, there's a little bit there. If you look at some like ancient literature on this, they'll say, well, the Greeks had in mind that the right side was bad luck and Jesus defies that and all that. I don't think there's much there. As a matter of fact, I don't, I don't think John is particularly preoccupied with that kind of thing. I think what John is preoccupied with is they don't know, the disciples don't know, and Jesus does know. And they're right there and they can't, they're can't. they right where the fish are, and they can't catch them. And he knows. And so they go from nothing to this huge haul, and it's so big they can't even haul it in. And it goes from the emergence of Jesus, who calls out, asks them, they answer no, he coaches them, uh, to the recognition of Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. That disciple whom Jesus loved, again, I think that's John, the author of this book, that disciple whom Jesus loved Therefore said to Peter, "It is the Lord." And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Now, if there's ever been more John, and if there's ever been more Peter, it's hard to put those two guys right. It's harder to get a good microcosm of what these guys are about. So it starts with with John, and he sees this, and he almost quietly, right, leans over to Peter. His, I I don't know if this is fair to John or not. I get the feeling that sometimes John lets Peter make their mistakes for him, right? You know, he's sort of like the big brother who says, "Go ask mom," uh, you know, about this whenever you know. But right, but he sees it. He goes, "It's the Lord." In other words, kind of the way we would do is like, "Wait, that's that's Jesus," right? And so he recognizes him, and that's true to form. You know, right? It's kind of who this guy is. He's the guy who has the earliest insight so often. That's him. And then Peter's the guy who just like jumps in the water rashly. And that's kind of who he is. And it says there's some kind of debate about this. We really don't know because of, we don't know enough about how the commerce worked and their boats worked. But it says that he wrapped himself up, in his outer garment, because he was stripped for work. Now, that might have been... And I get this, I'm very sympathetic to this view. He didn't want to swim ashore and be naked. That's not the right way to make an appearance. But the other side of it is probably more likely, I think, he's stripped down for work and he's taken his clothes with him so that it wouldn't encumber him as much. He's tying it up so he can swim better ashore. But that's not really even the point. The point is that he recognizes Jesus, responds to Jesus, and uh, I love this, Verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, right? So Peter's already swam ashore. They came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land but about 100 yards off. They got, they got stuck doing the work, having to drag this huge haul in. And they do it. They don't leave the fish that were caught, so they drag them, and we go from sea to shore. And in verses 9 through 13, the theme goes from right getting fish to uh, eating breakfast with Jesus. Verse nine, Jesus is cooking. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus is still providing, still serving. And then it talks about their huge catch. In verse 10, it starts, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. It's a huge catch. And, uh, and, you know, Jesus says, bring some of the fish. And Peter goes, and he hauls it in. It says something. Peter's probably a pretty strong guy uh, to, to climb aboard and drag the, the fish in. And then it says, very specific, there are 153 of them. Now, again, this is one of those passages that a lot of commentators, a lot of people have, you know, offered some opinions. Like, what does 153 mean? And I'm going to tell you based on extensive research, I think it means 153. That's what I think it means, okay? Um, and, but in fairness, in the ancient world, numbers a lot of times meant something in particular. And so scholars would look at it and they would go, oh, it looks like it's connected to maybe this passage out of uh, Ezekiel representing all the tribes, all different kinds of people in the world. Um, But every time they did the number, I mean, this is the big problem with that view. The numbers don't actually add up to 153, which to me seems very fatal to that theory. Um, Another one of those that I think this is kind of interesting, Uh, 153 is what you call a triangular number. What does that mean? Glad you asked. If you go 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 all the way to plus 17, what does that spell? 153, right? And so they would play with numbers like that. And it's led scholars, it's led interested people saying maybe this symbolizes something. Now, having said that, we have to keep in mind this is fish. So if somebody asks you how big your fish was, I mean, there are two questions to fishermen. How big? How many? That's it, right? How big? How many? And I think in the basis of this is the reality is somebody, I mean, there's seven dudes there, not counting Jesus, and what are you going to do? That's a lot of fish. I wonder how many fish there are. And somebody starts going, everybody else is eating breakfast, and somebody else is going, one, two, three, four, right? All the way to 100. Hi, guys. Hey, lads. Hey, children. There are 153 fish here. What does that symbolize, if anything? I doubt it's the specificity of one, five, three. I think it's more general. I think it's what we call a lot. Remember the microcosm? On their own, night, nothing, and day breaks. And at Jesus' direction, day breaks and it's full. It's not torn. That at his direction, it's going to hold it all right? There's the contrast. And then uh, the narrative itself starts to wrap up in verses 12 and 13. It says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of, the, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now, Let's start with this. The, kind of the obvious point, this isn't very theological, but I'm a 21st century American. I like to think of myself as a fairly refined individual, right, but I gotta say that I have holes in my game and one of those is I'm not a fan of fish, okay? Not a fan of fish. Go to a restaurant, hey listen, our special is, and a lot of times I'll cut them off. If it swims, I don't eat it, all right? And then there are people, some of you like love fish. That's your go-to, it's fine. It's fine if you love fish, but I get asked from time to time, well, what is it about fish that you don't like? I, mean, I don't know. It's like the smell and the texture and the appearance and the taste. And, you know, that's about it. That's all. And if I could get over that, I would love But even so, even if you love fish for breakfast... I mean, he's like, Jesus says, come have, fi-, you know, come have breakfast. What are we having? We're having fish. I don't care who you are, man. That would put me off, right? Fish for breakfast. I'm still kind of bitter. My, when I was a little kid, my parents got those little processed fish sticks that made me, I didn't have a choice. I ate those with tartar sauce. Still kind of resentful about that. But anyway, that's not the big, it, the big thing here is n- no one dared ask him if it was really him, it says, but they knew what does he mean by that? No one dared ask. Why wouldn't they dare ask him? I think in this sense, it it's understates it to say seeing someone resurrected in a glorified body would be a bit unsettling. And he's appearing out of nowhere, right? Then this has happened for the third time here. And, and the question would be something like this. Is it really you? They know it's him, but they can't believe their eyes. And then it says in verse 13, he took the bread and so with the fish. Does that sound like anything to you? There's up. earlier in the gospel of John, in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in John 6, 11, it says this. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, those who were, to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. And here it says... Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. It looks very much like the guy before. Uh, the same one who provided is the same one who's putting them on a mission. The same one who called all of this the, the broken body and the future mission is the one who called it. And then it, the whole thing concludes in verse 14. As a wrap-up, right, there's these kind of brackets, the introduction and then the conclusion, where he says this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Revealed, he's showing himself, he's showing who he is. For the third time to the disciples, and then the episode with Thomas, and now back home when they're fishing. What's the sense and flow of the passage? It's this, that Jesus is taking them from darkness to light. That it's emerging for them that they can see, at least the start of light. For the disciples, they're in the dark. That's how they start until the sun coming up. What is it that they're only now just beginning to see? Well, it's really not what, it's who. They're only just beginning to see Jesus. And you see this key. Jesus revealed himself. John recognized him. They didn't dare ask because they knew. So what do we see here? How do we wrap up? the passage this morning let me give you a couple of takeaways if i do any more i'll clutter it up so with the centrality of the risen jesus confirmed let me give you two things that we see here number one we have a basis for belief basis for belief this is not a legend this isn't like a story that people craft to tell themselves that they sort of build their lives around it this is not a narrative without a history you are called to faith. You are called to believe. But you're called to believe with a basis. There's a reason to believe. And there are lots of that, there are lots of those things. But one of those that we see here, it's just one piece here, it's a, a, an aspect of it is his appearance. That he was crucified, buried, he was really dead, and he rose from the grave. That's hard, right? You think about it, it, it seems like, well, they had so much to go on, why wouldn't they believe? I don't know, how many times have you seen somebody resurrected, right? It's not an easy thing. It's to say it's not common. It will be in the future, by the way. Uh, it'll be, right, 100% for believers. Um, but here, in, in the narrative, it, Jesus comes to them. And again, and again. In part, to confirm for them what, what they're seeing really is, in fact, the risen Jesus. That they can see it for sure, right? A basis to believe. So here's the thing. When you look at the the witness, the testimony of this, you have a basis to receive Jesus. You have a basis to share Jesus. And you have a basis, a good basis to live for Jesus in spite of what the world says. Even if the entire world contradicts everything that you know to be true, right? Because of Jesus. You have a basis to live loyally to Jesus. So right now, if you're in that spot where you're looking at, you're taking stock of yourself, And you think, all right, I'm nowhere with God. I am on the wrong side of God. I'm a sinner. Uh, I don't have any means for righteousness. Uh, What do I need to know? You have a basis to receive Jesus. He's the one who's borne your sin and overcome death for you. You have a basis to receive him. You have a basis if you're somebody who's been a believer for a while, not to live for yourself like in emptiness or isolation uh, in this world, just kind of hanging out until the resurrection comes, until the second coming comes. You have a basis to share Jesus. Whatever you do, what's your day job, for example? Maybe you're a student. Uh, maybe with your, you're with your kids. Maybe you're out uh, working with a particular company. Maybe you're hustling for your own uh, money in terms of your own business or whatever. What, what is it that you know since Jesus is true? You have a basis to represent Jesus in whatever sphere you find yourself. You should live loyally to him. You should, uh, you should be on the tip Uh, of your tongue when you have the opportunity to share Jesus. And that tells you something else. All kinds of programmatic things in a fallen world. We see Tower of Babel recapitulated all the time. Uh, You know, these seemingly great ideas that that turn to dust after a bit, after a season. And what you know is that you have a basis to say, I'm going to walk with Jesus in spite of what the world says. And if the world contradicts what the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. You have a basis to believe. The second one is this: it's the need for grace at every level of humanity. There are different ways that we organize uh, the world in our minds. People do this all the time, uh, but a, a, a person in his or her mind is going to kind of do this. So you're going to kind of sort people. You're going to put them in categories. This is nothing new. In the ancient world, people did it all the time, and it's it's so. This is true irrespective of time and place that it seems like it's intrinsic to the human experience. What do I mean by this? If you look at tribal cultures, they would almost always have a name for themselves, and it meant something like this, the people, and then have a name for everybody else. They're like others or strangers. And so it was the people, there's the uss and the strangers, the themses, all right? There's the usses and the themses, and that's the way they categorize people. And like I said, this is so common, it's almost so, such, so inescapable to our reality that you would think it's intrinsic to the way we think for some reason. Some form of idea, you could do this, It's done in politics and in such a tiring way right now, but you could do it by class, you could do it by ideals, you could do it by geography, it's done that way. But say you do that with Jesus. You say, this is the big reality, the Lord Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And then all the people connected to him, how do we, how would we organize the world in that way? And say you said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start with Jesus, and the level one is the disciple who walked with him. Nobody closer to Jesus than that. They got to see him in action. They saw what he did. They heard what he said, right? They're eyewitnesses to the whole thing. They've been commissioned and everything. And, and that'd be the best level. You'd think so, right? That for you to have insight, to know what's up. Except it never really seems to turn out that way. What do you see in those closest to Jesus? Do you see the, this intellectual and transformational advantage of an insider? I mean, maybe surprisingly, but No. Now they, it looks like they represent us. They're really obtuse. They, they're like, don't get it, guys. What they see, they can't add and connect together. We talked about one last week. Thomas, hey, we don't know the way. How could we know the way? And Jesus looks at him and says, I am the way. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. Right? They're not connecting it together. And then you come across this little word revealed. Verse 1, Jesus revealed himself. Not unveiled, revealed. And he revealed himself in this way. Verse fourteen. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Revealed, what does that imply? It implies that their sight was just covered. They couldn't see, they needed help, and it had to be opened up for them. What it means is that they needed help if they were going to see. If they were going to understand, if they were going to put it together, they they needed more than proximity. They needed somebody else to come and turn the light on for them. So here he comes, light of the world, the one who gave sight to the man born blind, and as day breaks, they begin to see. There's this need for grace at every level of humanity. And level one insiders, if you want to call them that, they need it just as much as everybody else. They needed what we all need, light to come into their darkness so that they can see. They needed that grace. You and I need that grace. And he's come, the light of the world. His name is Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Just we can see ourselves in... uh, In these disciples' lives, but more than that, uh, just the reality that Jesus has overcome, and that he's done the kind thing, the thing that in spite of our inadequacies, we needed most. He's given us a basis to believe, turned on the light. Um, So may we have the grace to receive, share, and live in light of that, uh, regardless of what the world says. And and help us to understand that we're in need of grace uh, at every moment. And what we're so grateful for is that you're that way. You're a God of grace, and so you give it. So we're grateful. So help us to be uh, light in a dark world who point always to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.